Good afternoon. I am here with my partner, Kate Davies, in London, and I will ask Kate to introduce herself just to give a quick background before we dive in. Thanks, Kirsten. Good afternoon or good morning, depending on where you are in the world. I'm Kate Davis. I'm a partner in the International Arbitration Group in London, and I'm here to talk about virtual hearings, which I've had the privilege of being involved in quite a few now. <laughs> privilege or misfortune, depending on your viewpoint. <laughs> Well, that actually sets us up quite nicely because there's a pretty big divide on that. But one of the things we wanted to start with was your experience. So virtual hearings really kicked off in earnest, certainly for merits hearings, as a result of the pandemic. And you have been involved in quite a few. Would you tell us a bit about your experience with virtual hearings over the past year? Sure. So I've done three merits hearings and I've lost count of the number of procedural virtual hearings that I've done over the course of the last year and as you say directly as a result of the pandemic. The two main merits hearings that I was involved in were both high value, highly complex, very involved matters involving a number of witnesses across a number of different jurisdictions and they both I think interestingly, in relation to a number of the issues that seem to come up as regards virtual hearings, they both involved issues of fraud or bad faith, which tend to be the sorts of issues that people say can only be dealt with and resolved in person. That was certainly something that was said to me many, many times over at the start of the pandemic. And I think indeed a number of trials, both arbitration hearings and court trials were deferred on the basis that the issues involved were fraud issues and therefore could only be dealt with in person as a matter of fairness. And I think views have shifted on that pretty considerably and certainly were, my experience has shifted. Were your hearings with those with those issues at stake, were your hearings held virtually on a consensual basis? Were the parties in agreement that they should proceed? Yes, they were. Um, although initially, and, and actually this, this is something that really comes out of the, the survey that we did, initially both parties in both cases resisted the hearings going ahead as virtual hearings. In the first one, the hearing was due to start almost exactly at the time when the first lockdown was introduced in London. It was a London-based hearing with a London tribunal, although we had witnesses and experts literally from all over the globe, literally from every single corner of the globe, from Australia to America and pretty much everything in between. So we covered all time zones. And in that particular case, both parties resisted going ahead on a virtual basis. And that was largely because the time scales involved just made the shift from a, a fully in-person hearing to a virtual hearing impossible to manage. There's an awful lot of preparation that needs to go into any hearing and suddenly shifting from in-person to virtual and getting your head around that as well as preparing for the actual hearing itself was just too much. But the tribunal was pushing very hard for that to go ahead. And one tribunal member who's a former Court of Appeal judge, and this will always sit with me, famously said in the hearing that we had on this issue, should it go ahead as a virtual hearing, famously said, you know, we're all going to have to get here at some point because climate change in the future is going to drive this. We are all going to have to do virtual hearings. It is not going to be acceptable in the future for people to be getting on aeroplanes from all over the world and flying to a single location with all of the carbon footprint issues that go with that. So this is the future. 
And that really struck me, not least because of who it came from. So that hearing was put off in March, but it was deferred until October and it was deferred by the tribunal on the basis that if it couldn't go ahead in October in person, then it would definitely go ahead virtually and the parties were given no option about that. And so that hearing went ahead in October on a fully virtual basis. It was an eight-day hearing involving 15 witnesses, five experts, as I say, from all corners of the globe. It's interesting that the pressure was coming from the tribunal to move forward. I was similarly involved with a hearing that was supposed to take place in Paris, a merits hearing, in May. So just as the lockdowns across the Middle East and Europe were being put in place, and there was no agreement on trying to push it back. From our perspective, the jurisdictions that we were in, so Dubai, Paris, and London, you weren't allowed to leave your home. And it felt incredibly difficult to ask witnesses and advocates and our team to effectively invite the tribunal into their home and to be cross-examined in your home. All the while, you were also dealing with the getting to grips with a new way of working. So I completely agree that with the position that we do need to get there. And it's one of the things we'll talk about in a little bit in terms of, is this where we're headed? But I think making parties get there in the context of the beginning of the pandemic and grappling with all the additional factors. And we did end up having our witnesses be cross-examined from their living rooms. And I conducted cross-examination from, from my home office. It does happen, but I think it probably was a little bit of a big ask in the very beginning. And it'd be interesting to hear how you found it. Was the first virtual hearing you did in October? Yes. So the the first merits hearing I did was in October. I mean, you're you're right. There's an acclimatisation issue, I think, from a council perspective that tribunals don't have to overcome. Tribunals are in receive mode. The arbitrators, the judges are in receive mode. As council, you have a very singular focus on driving whatever thread it is that you've got for your story and your case at the hearing. And anything which distracts you from that, anything which is out of the ordinary, is frankly terrifying to have to overcome. So you're right, at the beginning, I think people were very reluctant to overcome what seemed like an enormous barrier to achieving what we're all paid to achieve at these hearings, which is to drive your client's case and to do it in the most effective way possible. Anything that's new and new on such an enormous scale is scary. But I think as people became more used to working remotely and got into their stride and discovered that actually lots of opportunities arise as a result of working remotely, because instead of us all getting on phone calls, which is certainly the way procedural hearings that I've done in the past have been run, on a phone call, actually we can jump on WebEx or Teams or Zoom or whatever it is. And that completely changes the dynamic. It makes it much more personal, much more like having an in-person hearing. And I think as people have become more comfortable with that, so it has become easier to contemplate doing a hearing virtually. So yes, my October hearing was deferred from March. It was the first big hearing that I did. And one of the biggest cases I've ever done. It was it was a very large case with a number of very, very complex issues. And one witness, the key witness on the other side, whose evidence all went to this question of alleged bad faith, which is akin to fraud, 
that witness was probably going to be cross-examined for somewhere between eight and 12 hours by me. So I was facing cross-examination for 12 hours. That's difficult in any situation, even in person, because I've done it before. Doing it virtually seemed to be an enormous barrier. The, the thing that made the biggest difference for me in the October hearing was making the shift mentally from thinking that I had to do this in my home to thinking actually I could make it work by going into the office and doing it with AV people around me, my team, at least based in London, around me. And that will give me something of the feeling of the the drama that you have when you go into the courtroom or the arbitration hearing room that gives you that edge to get you started. Sitting in your home where you've just woken up half an hour ago and got out of your pyjamas, it's quite difficult to get into the headspace of doing a hearing. And that was a really big decision for me, not least because I feel safe and secure in my home from a COVID perspective. And suddenly I was contemplating getting into a taxi, going into the office. What am I going to be exposed to? But once I got myself through that barrier, that for me was the single biggest decision that made the biggest impact on how the hearing ran was actually being in the office with all the facilities that the office provides and having at least some of the team in the office with me. From your perspective, so if you had been able to do anything differently or if there's anything you would have wanted to know before you participated in the virtual merits hearing, what would that one thing be that you would want to highlight to a party that's about to participate in a virtual hearing for the first time? <laughs> I mean, my it's a difficult one because if I'm completely honest, I had such a positive experience and I'm talking as counsel. So the advocate arguing the cases, doing openings, cross-examining all of the witnesses. My experience of it was so positive that I struggled to find anything really fundamentally different between a virtual hearing and an in-person hearing such that I don't have any great insights other than what I might consider to be the obvious ones. Make sure you get the technology right. Choosing the right platform can make a really very significant difference. The first hearing I did, we did on Zoom. I was actually personally very reluctant to use Zoom because it doesn't have all of the, what we might think of as the confidentiality bells and whistles around it. There was, you know, there is a perception about Zoom that it isn't as secure as other platforms, but actually it has very, very good functionality, including down to the ability to organise your screen in a way that makes it the most effective possible for interacting as you would do in an in-person hearing. What do I mean by that? So in Zoom, you can ask anybody who is not speaking other than the tribunal to turn off their video. And you can then select a tile within Zoom that eliminates any of the squares on your screen that appear. So at the moment, I'm looking at a screen with certain people who don't have a video, but I still see a tile for them. That becomes quite distracting. In Zoom, you can eliminate anybody whose video isn't on. So in the first hearing that I did, I had at all times only the three tribunal members and the person who I was cross-examining appearing on the screen and obviously myself, though you can eliminate yourself as well. Eliminate the opposing counsel? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, because 
I don't want to see opposing counsel while I'm cross-examining their witness. The only people I want to see are the tribunal and the witness. Um, and you can, you know, there are, there's lots that you can do in Zoom, contrasted with WebEx, for example, where you are much more limited in terms of how you see the screen. That makes a huge difference. And I know that because the first hearing I did was Zoom and the second I did was WebEx. And the second one on WebEx involved, I mean, it was a huge hearing that went on for six weeks. There were 45 witnesses and experts, again, from all over the globe. It was a, a huge arbitration involving tens of millions of documents. And, you know, there were 30 or 40 people on the call every time. And it was very difficult to get rid of them all and only see the people that I wanted to see. So I ended up having to get rid of the tribunal as well. So I couldn't really see the tribunal, which didn't matter so much, but you do want to be able to see the reactions of the tribunal and having the right technology to allow you to do that makes a huge difference. Zoom, I could see the tribunal's reactions. For example, there was one of our witnesses who answered a particularly silly question in what was, I think, probably the funniest answer I've ever heard in any arbitration that I've done in the last 20 years. And each of the tribunal members who were on mute were obviously snickering to themselves at the answer that our witness gave. Now we couldn't hear them because they were on mute, but we could see them. And the chair, I mean, the chair sat there with his hand over his mouth, but he couldn't hide his eyes. And you could see <laughs> with his eyes that he was almost crying with laughter because the answer to the question, well, the question was so silly and the answer to the question was so funny. And that was really valuable feedback because that was on a $120 million counterclaim. And the answer that the witness gave went to the heart of that counterclaim. So we were able to sit there and say to the client, we think the tribunal might be with us on this one. <laughs> the ability to see and to read the tribunal is really important. And whether you can do that will depend on the technology and the platform that you choose and how you organise that platform. And all of that is just familiarity. That's not a barrier to doing things virtually. It's just becoming familiar with the differences between different types of technology and what you can do with them. So it's overcoming a fear and fear generally comes from lack of knowledge. So that would be my one biggest tip is to get the technology right. The example you've given in terms of the cross-examination you did of the witness and seeing the tribunal's reaction is particularly telling because one of the most controversial aspects based on the survey we've done of virtual hearings is concern of the impact on oral witness evidence. But it sounds as though from your experience, there hasn't actually been that much of a disruptive effect. No, genuinely my experience in both hearings was that it had no impact at all on the veracity, credibility, or weight of the oral evidence being given by witnesses. Now, I remember having a conversation with one of my partners in Paris, at the beginning of the pandemic and we were talking about what's going to happen are we going to have to move to virtual hearings and how is that going to impact the way that we run cases and the argument went and the discussion that we had was that for example in a case of fraud it is essential that you are able to read the body language of the witness that you can smell the fear that you can pick up on that tiny little tick in the room that gives away whether they're telling the truth or not telling the truth and that was the conversation we had. And I imagine that conversation was repeated many times over between many counsel and many clients across the world, because that was, was the obvious thing that people thought would lack in a virtual hearing. 
actually my experience, and remember both the big substantive trials I did were both fraud cases, my experience was actually the opposite. Again, getting the technology right. The witness in the first case that I did, who I cross-examined for nine and a half hours, who was the key witness on the bad faith, on the fraud, the other side's key witness, I actually think I had better access to his body language as a result of the hearing being done virtually than I would have done in a hearing room. In a hearing room, let's take room A30 at the IDRC on Fleet Street in London. I know that room intimately. I've done many, many hearings in it. I'm at least five or six metres away from the witness who's sitting at a table facing the tribunal, not me, because all witnesses are coached to give their answers to the tribunal, not to me. One of the benefits of a virtual hearing is that that witness, and again, because I've got the right technology, which I can organise so that that witness fills one of my screens, that witness is actually sitting right in front of me, looking at me when giving their answers, head and shoulders. I've got a full frontal image, which is less than a metre away from me, of that witness, and I can observe all of their reactions to the questions that I'm asking. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, if a witness is being evasive or difficult or not answering questions directly, all of that comes out in the words that they use more than it does in the language of their body. Yes, body language is important. Yes, that tells you something. But most studies into language and the use of language tell you that the most important thing is actually your tone. And you still get tone over virtual hearing. And in the case of a witness, the words do matter. If I ask a straightforward question, the obvious answer to which is either yes or no, and the witness decides not to answer yes or no, but says, well, you know, actually what you're missing is X, Y, and Z. And what you have to do is go back to, that's obvious to everybody that the witness is trying to avoid the answer to the question. You don't need to be there in person to know that that witness is being evasive. So my experience is you don't actually lose anything material in terms of witness evidence, as long as you get the technology right, you don't have connection issues, you know, all of those things aside. And I was lucky enough not to have any of those issues. But my experience was you, you don't lose out just because you're doing it virtually. I completely agree in terms of that was one of the biggest concerns about making the shift to virtual merits hearings is the witness evidence and the witness being alone in a room, what kind of documents will they have that we won't know about? And also, you won't be able to see the whites of their eyes when you're asking the questions and seeing the answers. And I agree in terms of the visibility you get of being up close with the witness virtually is actually a lot better. The concern is, is everyone watching? <laughs> but I completely agree, it, it can be much better. But to that point, is everybody watching? You have that problem in in-person hearings. How many times have you sat in an in-person hearing watching the third arbitrator sit there sleeping never. through the <laughs> Absolutely never. <laughs> Obviously never. But Obviously you know, never. And how many times in an in-person hearing do you sit there watching the tribunal sort of reading the document? that you're cross-examining the witness on, rather than looking at the witness, he's, hang on a sec, he just lifted his eyes to the ceiling. You should have seen that because you would have known that he's lying. It doesn't happen. There are so few cases that really turn on that kind of minutiae of body language and in person, the smell of fear on a person. 
it never happens. It's like so few hearings turn on a smoking gun document. It doesn't happen. Um, and it that's why, and I think if you look at the survey results, there is a disconnect between, on the one hand, the biggest concern being, as you say, is what's the impact on witness evidence going to be? And on the other hand, saying, well, actually, a virtual hearing has had no impact on the outcome. That tells you everything you need to know, which is actually these disputes very rarely turn on witness evidence. As common law lawyers, we put perhaps a disproportionate amount of weight on witness evidence because we think it is so important. But the reality is, and I say this sitting as an arbitrator as well as counsel, if you've got a document that addresses the topic that a witness is addressing, you're going to rely on the document rather than the witness. There are very few disputes that turn on oral evidence only. You know, the exception would be an agreement which arises out of a meeting, alleged oral agreement, where there are no documents to evidence, whatever it is that's been said. Yes, in that case, witness evidence is going to be very important. But those cases are rare. And you're absolutely right that in terms of the nuances, with evasiveness, that is captured by the transcript. And all of the other aspects that you would have in person or even virtually, that is not then actually taken into account in the transcript. When at the end of the day, you sit down with a transcript, you have just what the witness said. All of the impressions that as advocates, we tend to think are so important and will really make the case or break it then at the end of the day, don't appear in your dry transcript. And you're absolutely right in terms of the survey, the outcome, the sense that the outcome hasn't been affected or generally people's responses that they don't think the outcome was affected. I found really interesting because for some of these, like the virtual, the merits hearings, I, some of the outcomes aren't yet known. So it, it'd be interesting to revisit in about a year's time when the awards start coming out to see if there's any change in that view. But in terms of the kind of the big final question is, is the future and whether you think, are they here to stay? Are we looking at, provided we get the right technology and willingness on all sides, do you think this is where we are headed? Um, I think it is where we are headed, but I think more importantly, I think it's where we should be headed. I'm going to stick my neck out with a personal view and a personal belief. I do, pandemic aside, the single biggest challenge that we face as a race and as a planet, and I don't think it's too dramatic to say this, but having spent a lot of time looking at climate change and following climate change litigation over the last five or 10 years, the single biggest challenge we face as a race and a planet is climate change. And we are all going to have to make dramatic changes to our life if we want to avert the crisis and the threat, the real threat, that is climate change and the way in which it's going to change our world. And the pandemic, to me, has taught us that dramatic change is incredibly painful. And human beings are unlikely to make that kind of dramatic change unless they are faced with something that's right in front of them that forces them to go through something that's quite painful, because otherwise we all shy away from it, right? So I actually think the pandemic in many ways has done us a favour in this regard because it has brought about the kind of dramatic change that we can't as a race um, implement for ourselves because we're just incapable of putting ourselves through that amount of discomfort. I think it would be a massively wasted opportunity for us to come out of the pandemic 
with all of the difficult changes that we've had to make and just revert back to the previous status quo. Because the current status quo, where we are with virtual hearings, is going to help us to meet the next, frankly, far bigger, far greater challenge that we face, climate change. And yes, it may only be a small piece of it. But if every single arbitrator and every single general counsel and every single witness and expert and tribunal member in an arbitration, instead of jumping on an aeroplane to travel to a hearing, instead sits in their office, which they can walk to or bike to, or even sits in their home and conducts the hearing in that way, think of the carbon footprint savings that you're making. So I think over and above whether this is something that is here to stay, I think it should be something that's here to stay. And I actually think we all have a responsibility to make it work. Yes, there may be small things that we give away, although I have struggled to identify them based on my experience, which you know is limited. And I fully accept there are other people out there who've had a nightmare experience with virtual hearings for whatever reason. My experience was extremely positive if you can get all of the technology and the connections and everything else right in what were high value, highly complex, difficult fraud cases. I don't think there is an enormous amount that we give away by holding hearings virtually. And I think there's an enormous amount that we can gain in terms of the way we have to face the future. Very persuasive. <laughs> Thank you very much for talking about virtual hearings today. And I think that has brought us to the end of questions. Thank you, Kirsten.